Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, since Vildana won't invite me to join any of her many, many book clubs, we're going to have one right here on the podcast. So break out the Pinot Grigio and your comfy pants because we have a great guest this week to talk about a very important and timely book. Not only is she one of my favorite colleagues, but she also helped former Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker write his memoirs. And to boot, she has a fascinating piece out in the latest issue of Business Week about Volker's reputation as an inflation-fighting superhero and what lessons his experience holds for the current Fed as it tries to play that same role. But first, Vildana, confess, have, have you read the whole book? 100%. You're 100% of the book? Yes, and I have proof. Ha- well, you ha- don't spoil the ending for me. This won't spoil the, the ending for you, but... I know you'll know that I read all the way through because the acknowledgement section, I even read that. And oh my God. And Volker in it talks about our guest so, so nicely. And this is oh all gosh. at the end of the book. So this is my proof. All right. Well, you just, you've just, Did you? that was a spoiler. You, you, that was a spoiler of the acknowledgement. I've never even, oh, I never make it to the acknowledgement. You didn't read the footnotes, did you? Of course I did. Are you kidding? Oh my goodness. I was hoping to learn from them and, and learn I did. I, well, I, I confess, I've read most of the book. I had a very busy weekend. You know, it was parents' mm-hmm. weekend at my my daughter's <laughs> college, so there was a football game and a tailgate. Of course, and uh, that's a lot of activity for a guy my name, I, a guy my age. I, uh, I I hardly even got a single nap in all weekend. But I've re- I think I read most of it. If you count the pages in the middle with the pictures, yeah, then I read most of it. You read most of it. Okay, yeah, just, just count, to make right? you to make you feel even worse, the Bills were playing on Sunday. And I didn't watch the game because I sat around reading the book. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I hope that's, you feel really bad. That's that's commitment. Yes. I do feel bad. Yeah. But it's what I've read is excellent. Okay. So uh, why don't you, you bring our guests in here? Who, who are we speaking to? <laughs> Let's hear what she has to say about you not reading. It's Christine Harper. She's editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Christine, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And and to be fair, I don't even read all the stories I edit sometimes. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> but, but Christine, why don't you start and just tell us how um, you got involved in this project and sort of what the division of labor is when you write a book with with such a legendary figure like that? Well, I can't speak for how this normally works. Cause <laughs> I, I think this was a really exceptional sort of lightning bolt experience for me. I'd never written a book and I just happened to know somebody who is in the publishing business. And a friend, a mutual friend came to me and said he'd suggested my my name to this friend in the, the publishing business as somebody who might be able to help Paul Volcker write his memoir. So 
the guy in the publishing business, whose name is Peter Osnos, calls me up and he says, would you be interested in doing this? Paul Volcker is getting quite old. He wants to write his memoir and uh, he just needs a little help. And I said, well, you know, I know nothing about writing books, so, and I'm not really an expert in economics, so <laughs> I don't know why. And he was like, listen, just, you know, go talk to him. It should be somebody in New York and, and you, we want to make it his book and not bring in somebody who's going to make it their book. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll do that. So, and I thought to myself, no matter what goes wrong here, the worst case scenario is I get to spend a bunch of time with Paul Volcker. How great is that? <laughs> so, so I had an introductory meeting with him in his Rockefeller Center office in uh, sort of late summer 2017. And he was absolutely charming and absolutely, you know, great and clearly had no qualms about working with an untested person like me. And so we just started meeting on a very regular basis at his office, at his home. He would tell me stories. I would record them. I would get them transcribed. We would talk. We would talk. And then eventually he started writing and handing me pages and, and handing his secretary pages to type up. And, and uh, I would give him feedback and we would talk about it. And so, yeah, it was just a, it was great collaboration. He wrote a lot of it himself, a long hand on a yellow legal pads. I had it typed up by his amazing secretary who uh, who could read his handwriting, which is not an easy <laughs> not an easy thing. And then uh, and then I would sort of edit it and and make notes and changes, and he would read it, and then he in his illegible handwriting write all these notes on it. He was very very involved. He he had a great uh, attention to detail, a great interest in making sure we always chose the exact right word. And I wasn't expecting that, but as I worked with him and as I learned more about his career, it it became clear to me that so much of being in the roles he had was about really perfect communication. If you read some of the Fed minutes from his time as chairman, the discussions are all about how to convey exactly the right way in their, you know, in their statements and in their communications what they were trying to achieve. Because of course back then they didn't they didn't announce what the Fed funds target was, you know, they just, it sort of, they would do it. The open markets uh, desk would, uh, would uh, make it happen. They did announce the discount rate, but it was, uh, it was a lot of it was just communication. So um, he, he's a, he was a great wordsmith, great communicator, really cared about how to tell the story, had a lot of stories to tell, didn't really want to focus mostly on the inflation episode. That was one chapter for him of a career that's full of amazing chapters and uh it was just delightful and uh he 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 and i worked on it really quickly got it done in i guess less than a year which is really impressive yeah and uh but you know he was a motivated guy he was very disciplined so you know and then unfortunately he got sick right towards the end um and and was died a year after he came out so it's really sad because you know he would he would have a lot to say today, but I think he, in a way he knew that his lessons would be of value to people in many ways going forward, and so he tries to he tries to impart them as as uh, clearly and uh, and impactfully as he can. And I, I want to get to all of those things, but I want to ask you one more question about the, the actual process, because I, I really like the stories about his childhood right at the start of the book and how I think there was one story about how he had this allowance that he, it was the same amount he was getting weekly or monthly that his sisters years beforehand had been getting and what that taught him about inflation. 
Um, and then I think later on in the book, he mentions something like he had been pulling out files specifically for the book, and he was surprised by the, the things and that he found and the notes that he had scribbled in the margins. So maybe you can just talk a little bit more about the process and what it was like where he, you know, for him to be digging out this, these historical documents. Yeah, I mean, it was great fun because not only did he have documents that either had been sent to him by people he'd grown up with or, you know, he'd sort of come across at some point. Um, but occasionally I would come up with something uh, that, you know, he may have overlooked. And uh, and so he was always delighted when something came. And, and there were also some stories he told me in our discussions that I recorded that when I said, oh, should we tell this story? He'd say, no, let's leave that one out. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, and actually one of the funniest moments, um, right towards the very end of writing the book, um, I think actually we'd already, it was already in galleys. It was pretty far along. And uh, he, I was in his study in his apartment, and he said he had like a first edition of uh, like Keynes or something in his, in his library there. And so I was looking around on the bookshelf trying to find it, and I couldn't find it. But I found this other slim volume, which was an economics textbook from the 1920s or maybe even before, the, I think maybe the 1910s, that had been his, his mother's textbook in college. And it was, wow. and, and it was filled with marginalia, the notes she'd written. And he, if he'd ever realized he had it, he'd totally forgotten about it. So he was sort of you know, discovering this. I'd handed it to him. We were looking at it. It was amazing. And uh, from, from her time at Vassar, right? At Vassar, exactly. And it was, I think the Fed had not been created. It was like really amazing. And so, um, so one of the notes she'd written to herself was about how it, psychology was the real key to so much of what was happening in what happened in economics and finance. And, uh, and I think that, really was kind of a eye-opener because he credits his father a lot with his interest in public service, but he, he also credits his mother as having been quite interested in markets and quite smart about them. And he quotes her a few times in the book, but we ended up adding this little bit about his uh, mother's economics textbook and her note to herself about how psychology was really important. Because, of course, if you look at what Volcker did during his career, he really understood the psychology of investors, the psychology of consumers and business people and so much of what he did in the inflation fight was basically around changing the psychology yeah. so uh it was cool to realize that his mother kind of knew that too that's that's pretty amazing yeah setting the the expectations i guess is so important for uh, a central bank but i became fascinated with his father a little bit too because Christine, I think you and I both sort of cut our teeth in journalism covering, you know, small towns, small municipalities in uh, Pennsylvania. And I, I was in Pennsylvania for a while in New Jersey. I know I think you were in, Del in good old Delco outside of Philly That's right. uh, for a while. Yeah. And and so Paul's father was a like a, a town manager. And I'm not sure if, if everyone appreciates in these small towns how that works. You have a sort of a part-time, you know, unpaid or lowly paid council and a lowly paid mayor. And then you bring in a manager who is supposed to be non-political at all. And that was that was Volker's father, I guess, in what, in Cape May and in Teaneck, New Jersey, a few other towns. Actually, uh, Vildana might know this from having read the acknowledgments because he, he does say in the, his very, very kind words about me at the end of the book uh, that I, w I 
actually thought his father was the real hero because I did, <laughs> I, I did become fairly obsessed with his father the more I learned about his father. His father was a huge deal in New Jersey. Yeah. And it was because, so his father was the son of German immigrants, grew, grew up in Brooklyn, studied engineering, became an engineer, worked on the Erie Canal, met Volker's mother up in the town on the Erie Canal, but then ended up discovering that there was this interest in kind of city managers, right? Like these professionalized city managers, because, you know, that was the era of like total corruption. I mean, American right. politics had gotten into the cesspool. I mean, you know, yeah. you can no, argue. Not, not, Ar like today's, not like today's claiming. But I mean, it pond. was all cronyism, all 100%. Yeah. And so somehow, like, New Jersey had passed this law allowing these, like, city managers to be appointed to be kind of professionalize the way cities were run. And uh, Paul Volcker Sr. was the first ever in New Jersey, first in Cape May and then eventually in Teaneck. And he had a remarkable effect on these communities. It was really an incredible turnaround stories. And so I was very keen on sort of opening the book because actually when – Paul would talk to me about the book. One of the key points he wanted to make was about public service. This was his real mission at the end of his life is trying to professionalize and, and better educate people for public administration. He cared a lot about it. That's what the Volcker Alliance he founded is, is dedicated to. And it was all really what his father had taught him. Yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, does that, do you think that influence of his father sort of having to be above the politics and, you know, non, non political, uh, played an influence on how he approached the Fed being, you know, the same thing, basically outside of politics. Yes. I mean, I think in, in all ways, but, you know, like I think when people think about Paul Volcker, they think of him as somebody who could kind of, you know, see every side of the political argument and stay uh, kind of above it. Um, but also uh, in the way that he sort of believed in a certain humility and sort of not not seeing himself as above the people, right? Like, so his father, you know, gave himself a pay cut during the Depression, you know, spent weekends going out and meeting with the families of all the city workers, whether they were the, you know, uh, uh, sanitation workers or whatever. It just, like, didn't matter. He was very, you know, sort of engaged in in this sort of very, you know, uh, democratic with a, with a small D way uh, with the people. And I think that was also something that Paul Volcker brought to, you know, the, the, his belief in like, you know, being a certain, basically kind of a servant to the, to the people more than like a, a ruler, you know, I mean, so he was above politics, but he always, you know, saw himself as sort of there to serve. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. 
Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Mike mentioned that you have this piece out in Business Week that recaps a lot of what what we were just talking about and what's in the book. But maybe you can just lay out for us what the environment was like back then when he became Fed chair and and what some of the comparisons are to what we're seeing today because we had high oil prices, I think, is one of the main things he had been talking about. So maybe just lay out the the environment. Yeah, yeah. So he came, he, he was appointed by Jimmy Carter to be Fed chair at this period of horrible inflation in 1979. Really, things had gotten out of control. You'd had a huge... Uh, energy um, uh, crisis with, you know, there was a big uh, issue with the Saudis and the other uh, Arab states. And uh, and so nobody had been able to deal with the inflation problem. There was also quite a lot of power in the labor unions back then. So um, uh, the negotiations for, you know, wages were much different from, I think, they are today. So that, I think, is a difference. But... Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, the inflation problem was much more entrenched back then. It had been going on through most of the 70s. Uh, it had, it, people had sort of failed to recognize during the late 60s and early 70s how much the war spending had was contributing to inflation, the war big Vietnam. Um, and there were just a lot of factors, you know, even the, the role that um, Volcker was involved in taking the dollar off the gold standard at the beginning of the 70s under Nixon. And that played a role. I mean, basically, the dollar was no longer anchored to, you know, gold. Um, so there was this, you know, decade-long kind of, you know, creep in, in prices. And it had gotten so that people just assumed prices were going to go up double digits every year. And his predecessors at Fed chairman had basically kind of thrown up their hands. They didn't know how to do anything about it. Because every time they would try to start raising prices, you know, they'd get all this pushback or try raising you know, interest rates, they'd get a lot of pushback, so much political opposition for obvious reasons. There was a, you know, a, a, um, a law passed in con- Congress, uh, which known as, uh, you know, now the dual mandate, they talk about it, which sort of required the Fed to make employment one of its uh, goals as well as uh, price stability. So, um, you know, when Volcker became Fed chairman, he knew he'd been New York Fed president that the problem he needed to address was inflation. He told Jimmy Carter that when he went to meet with him, he thought maybe that would prevent him from getting the job because he said, I'm going to raise rates a lot. And Jimmy Carter appointed him anyway. And he really admired that Carter did that because it, you know, he thinks it contributed to him only being a one-term president. But, um, but he, he, went, he came into the role saying inflation is the job I have to focus on. I'm going to ignore all the other factors. You know, he said the Fed economists at the time were telling him they were the the economy was about to go into recession, but he kind of just dis- disregarded them, and uh, and he had to, you know, raise rates as as strongly as he could. One thing I think is underappreciated, Christine, that I've I've really come to realize by by reading the book is that. Um, so much focus was on that aggressive uh, campaign to to raise rates. I mean, it, it, sometimes it'd be a, f- a few rate hikes within a few weeks, right? I mean, they, they were they were very uh, fast and aggressive about it. But 
There's also the notion of he sort of embraced uh, to some extent the ideas of Milton Friedman and the, the so-called monetarists, you know, uh, the, the idea that to control inflation, you also had to sort of control growth of the of the mon- uh, money supply. Um, and he, he referred to it as practical monetarism. So I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about what that means. But also, you know, I I get the, the impression that he maybe wasn't sure what exactly role that played in taming in inflation compared to the interest rate increases. You know, for one thing, it's just so hard to to measure the supply of money. He, he, he ran into some difficulties with that. But but talk us through what you think, you know, the legacy of that sort of part of his inflation fighting campaign is, you know, was that was that an important part of it, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that goes back to the stuff we were talking about with his his mom and the whole psychology thing, because when he was earlier in his career, when the idea of monetarism was first being introduced by Milton Friedman and other people, um, the the idea was much more mechanistic. It was sort of the that the to to the degree that there should be a Fed at all. You know, and some people didn't even believe you needed a group of human beings. It, it, it should just be about figuring out what the optimal supply of money in the economy was to prevent inflation, but also to allow the economy to grow and just keep that supply, you know, steady and make sure it didn't get, you know, beyond that. And, and, and nothing else. No other human judgment should be involved. It should be like automated, basically. And obviously, you know, when he was early in his career at the New York Fed, nobody he worked with agreed with that, right? <laughs> there were a bunch of yeah. you know, people working at the central bank. So he was kind of raised with this, this is a foolish idea. Monetarism is kind of, you know, crazy and it won't work. When he got to be Fed chair, it's actually interesting looking at some of the correspondence. I have some of it where uh, he's writing to Milton Friedman, actually, after he was appointed Fed chairman. And sort of hinting that, you know, he, he may, you know, he may do some things that, that, that Friedman would agree with, but he was sure Friedman would still cr- criticize him. <laughs> I, it, I, I think what he knew going into the job was that what they were doing wasn't really working, right? To just like setting interest rates higher and higher. Because as long as you were able to, as long as politicians and everybody could see human beings were setting these interest rates, there was always going to be pushback. There were always going to be human beings who couldn't stomach it, right? So in the second time they raised rates when he was Fed chairman, there was a split on the on the committee. And he, he was confident that the four people who were voting for higher rates would keep doing it. But he realized the market wasn't convinced. So he had to do something different. So he basically used monetarism as kind of a tool. He, so he didn't employ it in the pure way that the real monetarism monetarists would have wanted. He just basically used it as a psychological crutch. So he... he the Saturday night special, October 6, 1979, called the Saturday uh, press conference, announced a series of changes, including a rate increase and a whole bunch of, you know, different factors. But the main thing was from now on, we're going to we're going to target the money supply. And what that essentially did is it sort of tied their hands. It said to it said to the market, you know, it's not us human beings who are going to be setting interest rates anymore. We're just going to focus on the money supply and the interest rates will do what they do. You know, we're going to work up, we're going to focus on the quantity of money, not the price of money. The price of money, you know, well, it'll do what it does. You know, interest rates will do what they do. So they had this idea that they would have an upper limit and that they would revisit each, you know, if rates got to an upper limit, they would look at it. And it kept getting to the upper limit and they kept saying, okay, we got to let it go. We got to let it go. 
He says in the book that if he had realized at the at the outset how high rates had, would get, he might not have been able to do it. And so I think that's a, a, a sign of how successful that strategy was. Because if he had had to, as a human being, vote for those kind of interest rates, he would have found it too difficult. But when he was able to say, this is not our decision, it's what's happening because of our money supply decisions, it was it was a little easier to stomach. So it was a purely, it was kind of like used as a psychological trick. And then they abandoned it as soon as they found it kind of inconvenient. So it wasn't ever pure monetarism, but that's why he calls it practical monetarism. Maybe one thing that we can't get out of the book is the maybe uncertainty that he had felt or unease or confusion or I don't even know, use any any words <laughs> that are synonymous with that. And and possibly he told you about that time period and, and what it actually felt like for him to be working through it. Can you talk about that? Well, it's funny. He 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 was a little unwilling to really engage. I mean, there are there are some biographies that have been written about him, which tell stories about how like when he got nervous, he would go to the men's room a bunch of times or things like that. You know, so I mean, he definitely felt it. But at the point when I was working with him, he kind of he a little bit sort of you know, brushed it aside. But even so, I could still tell, even at age 90, it was still, it was still weighing on him whether he'd really, he, he, he felt the criticisms that are still leveled at him today from like people on the left or people on the right, that, you know, there would have been another way. And so he wrestled with that. I remember, you know, there's a famous book called Secrets of the Temple by William Grider, right? He was reading it when I was working with him. He was like, he would, he would, talk to me about stuff he was reading these criticisms and how he didn't dis- he didn't agree with them but like he wasn't he wasn't ignoring them and i thought that was really interesting because he still you could still tell that he wished there had been another way he felt the pain that he had caused he struggled with it but ultimately he couldn't he couldn't think of any other way and he understood that the value that bringing down inflation had for the for the people and, and you know it's interesting. I think ever since the Fed was created, there's there's been a backlash against the, the Fed and and sort of critics and uh, end the Fed or audit the Fed type of people. But boy, th- that really reached a, a a fever pitch during his uh, chairmanship. Could you talk to us a little bit about some of the protests and, oh, yeah. and some of the backlash that he faced? Yeah, no, he. I mean, he had the so the farmers who you know rely on borrowed money for planting their crops. They surrounded the Fed headquarters with tractors at one point. Uh, the home builders who you know because mortgage rate rates eventually got up beyond above like eighteen percent. They they all were sending two by fours to to the Fed with like angry messages. Um, you know his speeches would be interrupted by screaming protesters. He apparently once somebody released rats in the audience of one of his speeches. I mean, whenever I would bring these things up, he would sort of go like, oh, oh, it was a bunch of Lyndon LaRouche fans. Like he he sort of brushed it off as like, you know, th- that wasn't what the people really felt. He had and to I, get security, right? And he had to, I mean, yeah, he didn't even remember this. I found this in some of the documents in the, in the Volcker archives, like the letters that were written to him by the, you know, the Fed security department saying we have to get you personal. And he was six seven, right? Yeah, he's he was a tall guy, really imposing. And actually, a really fascinating thing is that I found this story from about a year after he got the bodyguard about this armed man who went into the headquarters of the Fed. I think he was carrying a knife and a gun or something. He was tr- he was angry about inflation and interest rates, and he uh, luckily didn't get near any of the Fed people. 
but he was he was arrested. But I found out that same guy later ended up killing somebody. Like he, I mean, after he got oh out of gosh. jail, yeah, I think he was the guy who killed a security guard in front of the like uh, Holocaust Museum or something, you know, down in DC. Anyway, so I mean, yeah, there were there were threatening situations, but like you know, he Volker didn't like, really like to dwell on that because I don't think he ever felt he was in danger. He always felt people made too much of it, and I think one of the most interesting things is that when he was Fed chair, you know, a group of 500 protesters showed up at one point outside and his, um, you know, PR people were like, you know, what should we do? We'll send them away. And he said, no, actually bring bring some of the leaders into my office. And so, you know, I don't know how many people would do that today. Just sort of spontaneously said, let let these strangers in. But he did. And uh, a whole group of people were in his office debating it with him. And he Ended up on the steps of the Fed afterwards, giving a sort of impromptu press conference with the leader of this uh, National People's Action Group, I think it was called. So um, he didn't he didn't shy away from engaging with people, even though clearly people were really angry. And what about the view of what he and the Fed were doing outside of the U.S.? Because I know he talks a lot about meeting with his counterparts in Germany and Japan and going through Europe on these like three or four day trips. And so what was the view outside. Yeah. So as you as you saw in the book, I mean, he early in his career was working in the Treasury Department under Nixon. And he spent a lot of time traveling around the world, including having to explain to all of our, you know, uh, allies around the world what why we're going off the gold standard. So he had really good relationships with uh, people in Germany and in uh, Japan, in, you know, the UK, uh, Italy. So he was kind of like a, a monetary diplomat in a way. And when he was going to try the, before he did the Saturday night special, he went to Belgrade for a big IMF conference and, and Burns gave a lecture there about, um, you know, how central bankers could no longer do anything about inflation. But by that time already, Volcker had met with the German, I think, chancellor and, and uh, central bankers. And they were they were going crazy that the the U.S. had allowed inflation to get so out of control, and they they felt like the dollar was too weak and it had to do something. So they were they were desperate for uh, him to do something, and he he sort of basically said, "Don't worry, I'll get it under control." So he got he he cared a lot about our relationships overseas, as well as you know what was happening domestically. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
One thing I think is fascinating when when we think of Volcker in this day and age, in this sort of a inflation, I don't know if you call it a crisis, but a, a, an acute problem that we have with inflation, all you ever hear about is, uh, you know, this in, inflation fighting efforts uh, that he had. But you know, reading the book, it, it's it's fascinating how many other fires he had to put out along the way. You know, uh, I, I didn't appreciate how involved he was with the Chrysler restructuring, for example, but what do you think, what do you, what would he rank sort of his legacy of, of some of those other issues he dealt with, you know, the um, the LATAM debt crisis? And uh, I, I was fascinated to learn that the idea of too big to fail actually dates back to, to his time. So, yeah. you know, talk to us about some of those other fires that he put out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, his his earliest one was the one I, I just mentioned about, you know, the taking the dollar off the gold standard. That was a gigantic moment in this country's history uh, when Nixon decided to sever that link. And and, and that was a, a huge crisis in its own way. And Volcker was right at the center of it with then Secretary of the Treasury, John Connolly. And he has some great stories to tell about that. So he'd sort of already like become this crisis hardened person by the time he got to the Fed. Um, so inflation, you know, was job one. But the result of higher interest rates, as I think some people in the markets now are worried about as well, is that there are often, if you've had a period of easy money, there are often a lot of bubbles that are forming. And then when rates go up more than people are really ready for, you know, accidents happen. And so you see in the book, uh, this section on uh, fighting inflation, basically the experiment with monetarism and, and all of that. And then you see the sort of catastrophes that resulted and how he had to clean them up, right? So you mentioned, uh, you know, well, Chrysler was sort of a little separate, but but you had uh, Continental Illinois, which was a huge bank, which had exposure to these speculative oil loans that uh, this bank, Penn Square, had originated. Penn Square went under. First, Pennsylvania B Bank had to be rescued. Uh, you had the savings and loan crisis a few years later. Um you had the Hunt brothers, which is a great, you know, story of just these billionaire brothers who had speculated on silver because, of course, silver would never stop going up because inflation was never going to get under control. And then when rates went up, they couldn't meet their margin calls. So all these brokers started calling the Fed, help us, help us. And he had to get involved, even though you didn't think the Fed should be involved in that. Um, but, yeah, he he discovered the, the dangers that the financial system you know, in, it, it has embedded in it. And then, of course, the biggest one was the U U.S. and European banks had these huge loans to Latin American countries funded by all the petrodollars from the oil-rich uh, Middle East. And and they these Latin American countries were no longer going to be able to pay them back. And in some cases, these loans were more than twice the, you know, capital of the bank. So they were going to go under. So I think ultimately it was 1982. What really caused Volcker and the Fed to stop the inflation fight was they had to rescue the banks. And so, you know, I think one thing to watch today is whether, you know, we find ourselves in a similar situation. If you read the end of the book, he talks about like the biggest risk that the biggest caution he has for central bankers is not only don't let inflation get out of control, but don't let the speculation that goes with inflation get out of control because the combination of, you know, 
out-of-control monetary policy and out-of-control financial speculation is the most damaging potential thing to the, to the economy. Well, let's talk a little bit more about today because you wrote in the Business Week piece, uh, to see the challenge ahead for Powell, it's useful to revisit Volcker's bumpy path to victory. And then I remember, I think it was at the Jackson Hole meeting a couple months ago, that Powell used a phrase that everybody recognizes being the title of your book, uh, which was that they were going to be keeping at it. And uh, I think a lot of people were trying to make that connection between Powell and Volcker. So can you talk about maybe some of the lessons or or what actually is happening today that Sure. Although I I like the wise old pirate uh, title better. Yeah, I like that too. (laughs) (laughs) I wish they would have gone with that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I I mean, so, you know, uh, when I would talk to Volcker about who should be Fed chair um, uh, at the time when, like, Trump was considering new uh, alternatives, he always expressed uh, uh, his view that having had himself experience in the private sector, and in Treasury Department, that uh, having that kind of practical experience uh, outside of academia, he thought was incredibly valuable and important. And so he was a big supporter of somebody with Jay Powell's background because he thought that brings you a little more more in touch with sort of the effects of monetary policy and a little less, less focused on the theory. So I think when you look at today, um, he would be encouraged that Powell is in the spot. He he would be very upset, and he expresses this in the book even before some of the later experiments with, you know, sort of inflation targeting. He thought it was always a mistake for central banks to be like trying to create two percent inflation. He didn't understand what that was. He he thought that was a mistake, and they were playing with fire. And of course, it turns out they were. Um, I think he would be glad that you know Powell is talking a lot about trying to be more like Volcker. And uh, I think he would just be concerned that, you know, some of the speculation that we saw, especially like if you think about 2021, how crazy things got. I, I, I feel certain that if he had been alive during that, he would have been ringing the alarm bells pretty loudly. Um, so he would, I think he'd be disappointed that the Fed hadn't kind of figured it out. Um, yeah. So, Yeah. It's it's just a fascinating book, Christine. There's so many little anecdotes that I love, like when uh, he noticed on his driver, the front seat of, of his driver's car, there was a book called How to Live with Inflation. <laughs> yeah. And and he said that uh, he knew he he was on the right path because the driver said, well, the only reason I bought it was the price was reduced from like 10 bucks to, to two bucks. But some of his, uh, and I think we're going to have to segue to the crazy things soon, but a good segue for that is for me to ask, which I think is admittedly a crazy question. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. But he's some of his, uh, his wit is very self-deprecating. You know, he talks about being a procrastinator, and he often makes jokes about his height, um, you know, six, seven. Honestly, I got to wonder if, being such a big imposing figure was an asset to him when sort of history needed this sort of very strong character. Am I crazy to think that? No, I don't think so. I mean, he had, he, I don't think, I'm not sure he would have admitted this, but look at, he really played a character, right? He had the, he had the whole cigar thing, you know, um, he quit smoking by the time I knew him, but he would sit there and testify and smoke the cigar. And he was incredibly, 
tall. He had this deep voice. And he had this just air of authority. And I think he knew uh, that that was, you know, I mean, he, again, back to his father. His father had basically ruled this city and gotten it into shape. And his father was just as tall. Um, so I think I think he understood, again, the psychology of, you know, how to assert authority, how to how to. You know, he'd watch the politicians he'd worked with. He'd watch John Connolly outfox some of the other people in the Nixon administration. He was quite a quite a astute student of people and how they are effective and how they aren't effective. He knew what he was. Yeah, doing. that that psychological effect of a big six seven cigar chopping. You know. Uh, but it reminds me of those old memes you used to see of, uh, you know, a graph of interest rates and the height of the, the Fed chairman. You know, it, it went from Volcker to Janet Yellen <laughs> being the shortest. And then sure enough, here we are uh, with Powell, you know, and, and rates are going back up. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something to it. But <laughs> that's the craziest question I had. But I'm glad you uh, you played ball with that. I'm, I'm not not as crazy of a question as I thought it was, I guess. <laughs> no, no. There's there, there's a great story that I once heard Bill Bradley, the former New Jersey senator, tell about how uh, he remembered when, you know, Paul Volcker used to go back to New York City every weekend, you know, because his wife still lived in New York. So uh, Bill Bradley would be going back to New Jersey for the weekend and and they'd get on the, the shuttle, which, you know, doesn't really exist in the same format anymore. But the Washington, the plane that went from Washington to New York, like on the hour and they would just go and they'd sit in economy class on Friday night or Friday afternoon and get like, you know, they'd be in like seat, you know, 25, you know, huddled up with their <laughs> knees in the chest and, you know, surrounded by other people. And yeah, it was just a different time. So. Uh, another uh, Princeton basketball player. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Even taller than Paul. <laughs> Great stuff, uh, Christine. We really appreciate your time. And, and I, again, I can't recommend this book uh, as, as strongly as I can. I mean, it's uh, such an important look at period of history that I think is, is very uh, echoing loudly these days. So we appreciate your time. But we're not going to let you go until we hear the craziest thing you've seen in markets recently. Valdana, I think we'll start with you, though. I have a pretty good one. Okay. But it's I, you usually do. It's Elon Musk related. Oh, no. Oh, oh, there, no. There, there's nothing crazy about nothing. him. I think we might have the same one. Oh, no. Oh, I hope not. But he's done so many things this week that honestly, True. it's, it's True. possible that it's... Anyway, he's promoting a new perfume. Same one? You have the same one? I do, yes. Ah, oh, oh. shoot. But it's so good. It is good. Okay. He's, he said it's called... This is so disgusting. Burnt hair. It's the essence of repugnant desire. It's $100 a bottle. And he tweeted, of course, that 10,000 bottles had already been sold. And I don't know. I, I mean, I guess this is really happening. He's not joking around. I, I, it's, you never know with this guy. It's like the shorts. Remember, he sold shorts <laughs> yeah, to target short sellers and also the flamethrower. The flamethrower. Yeah. And he said something to the effect of, uh, with, with my last name, it was inevitable that I'd get into men's <laughs> cologne. That's good. That's really fun. good. That's a good so, pun. Oh, okay. Well, wow. you jinxed us, but yeah. I was gonna I was gonna do prices precise on the, the dollar value of the bottle. Hundred dollars a bottle. Ah, I shouldn't have said it. For for burnt hair perfume. For maybe he's put those flamethrowers to work to, to get that <laughs> scent. <laughs> Possibly. All wow. right. Well, great minds think alike, I guess, or even even you and I 
Yes, occasionally. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Christine? What's the craziest thing you've seen recently? Uh, nothing quite as crazy. I mean, I just I'm watching very closely what's happening with the UK central bank, having lived in London and and uh, having a lot of friends over there, and watching uh, the BOE trying to tell people on the one hand they're going to support you know whatever happens, on the other hand you only have a few days to clean it all up. And uh, I know. I so know. so I think uh, that's as crazy as it's getting. But you know. I'm sure it'll be more crazy. As soon as I walk out of this booth, there'll be something even crazier. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you had to ch challenge uh, channel Paul Volcker and give advice to the BOE, what, what do you think he would tell him? Well, I think he, you know, he dealt with his share of exchange rate crises also. <clears throat> including helping <laughs> helping Thatcher keep the the pound above the dollar. So I think he would say though that you've got to deal with your domestic uh, situation first. So I think he would. He would encourage Powell to keep at it with the inflation fight and not be distracted by helping the pound out right now, probably. That sounds about right. Yeah. Christine Harper, fascinating uh, conversation and a really great book. I hope everyone in the What Goes Up book club will uh, go out and read it. Who's in charge of this book club, you or I? I, I it sounds like you want to be in charge of it. I definitely do. <laughs> All right. You're, you are the chair of the What Goes Up book club then. My first order of business is kicking you out. <laughs> ah, I knew it. I knew it. I knew, just because I didn't finish the book? Uh, yeah. Must well, yeah. <laughs> if you bring I'm wine to the next meeting, then you'll, uh, you'll be re- I mean, you're, right. you're putting your children first. Like I think your priorities are all mixed up. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is why you were kicked out. Well, you got to write another book, Christine, and we'll have you back Uh and by the way, read Markets Magazine. Uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent uh, Bloomberg periodical. Yeah, that, uh, Keeping at it by Paul Volcker and Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Two, two must-reads. That's our two must-reads for the week. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Christine. What Goes Up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.